Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He, ha- he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be here together. There is no better place to be than in your house with your people, singing your praises, hearing your word. I pray that you would grant us a humility to draw near to you, so that we can receive your word with trembling. For those are the people that you esteem, those who tremble at your word. So may we this morning tremble at your word, humbling ourselves underneath it and underneath you. We thank you that we can do this with confidence because of your son Jesus. We can draw near to you. We can listen with faith because of all that you've accomplished for us through Jesus. So even hard truths are gracious and precious truths. And this morning, I pray that you would speak your truth to us. I pray your Holy Spirit would come down in great power and do his mighty work in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so I don't know if you've heard, but there is an election this week. Anyone heard that? Supposedly the most important of our lifetime. At least that's what I've heard. It's amazing how politics has become so consuming in our society, right? It's just become all-consuming. It's at a feverish pitch, and it has been for some time. And it's not to say that politics is unimportant. I'm not bashing that or, or that, it's, that, it, that it has our attention, but it's become all-important in our society, almost consuming And that's why I think the message of this psalm is so important. We ought to be involved in the political process. We ought to prayerfully vote for the candidate or party or platform we believe will uphold justice and honor God and all of that, do what's right before the Lord. We ought to do this, no doubt, but we ought to do it as Christians. And we ought to do it as Christians who worship the triune God of the Bible, first and foremost. 
politics or political activism has almost become a religion in our society. Political activism is not ultimate. Worship is because American politics is not ultimate. God is. And so worship is ultimate and this psalm talks about worship. I don't know if you know this, but yesterday was Reformation Day. Anyone remember Reformation Day, October 31st, every year, 503 years ago, yesterday, Martin Luther took his 95 theses, his 95 contentions or arguments against the Catholic Church, nailed them to the Wittenberg Castle door, and the Reformation was kicked off. Now, we often think of the Reformation as a time when certain important doctrines were recovered, Things like justification by grace through faith in Christ, and of course, that's true. Things like the five solas of the Reformation, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone. And praise God, that did happen during the Reformation. These truths were recovered. But there's something else that happened during the Reformation. Worship exploded. In particular, congregational singing, lifting up voices and praising God. I was reading an article yesterday about a guy named Jan Hus. He was kind of a forerunner of the Reformation. He was someone who, some say, prophesied of someone who would come later. They think it was Martin Luther. Jan Hus was someone who lived 200 years prior to Martin Luther's day, and he was burned at the stake. And there were three reasons, at least this article laid out, that he, three reasons for why he was burned at the stake. And one of them, whoa, one of them was because he encouraged and sought to establish wherever he had authority and so forth, worship, singing, music in the church. The the reformers, especially Martin Luther, understood that there could be no reformation by merely returning to doctrinal fidelity. The glorious truths that were being recovered needed to find expression in doxology or in praise and worship and singing. Martin Luther thought that that music in the church was so important, that singing and praise to God was so important that he thought it was second only to the preaching of God's word. Listen to what he said and just listen to how Martin Luther puts it, the the way that only he can. I mean, every year we just need to have our toes stepped on by Martin Luther on Reformation Day, right? Well, he's going to do it right here, okay? He says, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. So that sounds good. But then he says this, but any who remain unaffected by music are clodhoppers. Indeed, and are fit only to hear the words of dung poets and the music of pigs. Martin Luther is saying that music and worship, singing praises to God is Underneath the word of God, preeminent, right? Right underneath the word of God. Right underneath preaching God's word. And it's so important that anyone who's not moved by it or not at all impacted by it, I'm not saying style, we have different styles, all of that, whatever. There's, there's something maybe needs to be fixed in, internally in that person. Worship is central. So in this time of political fervor where politics is at a feverish pitch 
We want to grow deeper in worship, don't we? We want to be people that worship God. Not worship a party or worship an outcome or worship a person and power. And so it's fitting that we're still in the Psalms, which is the church's divinely inspired songbook. When it comes to worship, there is an inexorable truth. There is a truth that cannot be denied. There's a truth that is true. There's a truth that that is unstoppable. It's just an inexorable truth. And it's this we become like what we worship. Psalm 115 shows us that so clearly. Worship is so powerful. It's so transformative that you will become like whatever it is that you worship. And Mark my word, everyone is a worshiper. We were made to worship. We were made to exalt something. And whatever that is, we will become like it. G.K. Beale, in his great book called We Become Like What We Worship, put it this way. He said, we resemble whatever we revere for ruin or restoration. We resemble whatever we revere, either for ruin or for restoration. We see this with young children at a very early age, imitating their parents, either for good or for bad. Right? You ever notice that with your kids? They copy you. (laughs) They imitate you. And there's a good reason for that. As your parents, at a very young age, they revere you. We're told of the deadly danger of worshiping false gods in verse 8 with the statement, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So the psalmist says the, the gods of the nations that they form out of gold and silver, right? They form it out of gold and silver. They have eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear. They have hands they can't fee- feel, feet they can't walk. They make no sound with their throat. And then it says this, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Thomas Manton, who was a 17th century pastor in England, wrote or commented on this verse. He said, They that serve a base God cannot be but of a base spirit, and so can do nothing worthily and generously. Every man's temper is as his God is. So if you worship something or someone other than God, you will become like that person or that thing. And that will lead to being spiritually deaf, dumb, and lame. On the other hand, on the other hand, if you worship Christ, you become like him. Amen? When we become, when we worship Christ, we become more and more like Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, he said, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Worship is ultimate. God created us to worship and God created us to worship him. Worship is central and worship transforms. 
So, what are the hallmarks of true worship that we see in Psalm 115? That's what I want to talk about today. The hallmarks of true worship, worship that transforms, worship that makes us more like Christ. What are the hallmarks of true worship? Well, it starts right in verses 1 through 3. And it's this. The first point is this. True worship magnifies the glory of God. True worship magnifies the glory of God. It says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Just that first phrase, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. True worship seeks to elevate and exalt the beauty and the magnificence of God. Not us. Not you and I. Worship is not about us. Quite frankly, this is what's so distressing to me about so much of the entertainment church gatherings that we see everywhere. Right? What's the point? People want to be entertained and want to have fun and don't want to think too much and don't want to be demand, have much demanded of them. And so worship becomes more about distracting them and entertaining them and getting them to think positive thoughts about themselves and have positive self-esteem. And who is the object of worship in that setting? People, not God. So the psalmist says this, not to us, O Lord, not to us. It's interesting that he starts right there. He doesn't say, to your name give glory, not to us. He says, not to us, O Lord, not to us. And he repeats it for emphasis. Right? We, we underline things, we bold things, we, we italicize words, we put exclamation point after things we really want to emphasize in our texts and emails and handwritten notes. The Hebrews, they repeated things. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. I think he repeats it because of our natural inclination, natural inclination to seek our own glory. Not only does seeking our own glory dishonor God, but it also goes against what we were made for. We were made not to seek our own glory, but to seek the glory of God. Stephen Charnock, who was a pastor in the 1600s from London, he said it is vile and the dishonor of the creature who by the law of his creation is referred to another end. We are referred to another end. By the law of our creation, we were made to worship God and not ourselves. In other words, we were not originally created to look into the mirror and become infatuated with ourselves. Right? Look into the mirror and say, wow, you're amazing. We were made to look away from ourselves and see God in creation and in his revelation that he has in his word and by his spirit see him and say, you're amazing. We were made to worship God. Now, sin, of course, has disfigured our hearts and so to have our hearts awakened to the glory of God so that we turn away from ourselves and glory in him is a gracious work of God's spirit. I pray that he does that today among us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Worship is about God. 
True worship magnifies the glory of God. It's about giving glory to God. Now this magnifying the glory of God or giving glory to the Lord, is, it's more than just an emotional feeling. It's more than just having our emotions stirred in a certain kind of atmosphere. No, don't get me wrong. Emotions are important. Emotions will be stirred. But our emotions are to be stirred as they come into contact with what is true or as they come into contact with truth. Notice the psalmist says, He doesn't just say to you give glory, but to your name give glory. The name of the Lord is to be given glory. Now in the Bible, when it speaks of God's name, it speaks of his nature and his character, right? So mindless mantras, just saying the same words over and over again, mindlessly, they don't glorify God. We want to we say things about God and to God and praises to him in accordance with what is true about him, in accordance with, with his name, with what he's like, with his nature and his character. Specific names are given to God in the Bible to help describe what he's like. I have this great book I went over with my kids. I've gone over a couple of times with my kids. It's called God's Names. And it's just a wonderful book. And it goes through 26 or 27 of the names of God in the Bible. Names like El Shaddai, God Almighty. Tells us what God is like. Names like El Elyon, God Most High. Names like Adonai, which in English translations usually just translated Lord, but it means Sovereign One. It's It's a title given to God. Well, this psalm magnifies the glory of God by pointing out several things for our consideration. It doesn't just say, give glory to God. It says, give glory to the name of God, and and here's what God is like. So, what does it show us? First, we see God is magnified, or God is to be glorified because he is Savior. He is Savior. Verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of or because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, why do I say Savior? Why do I say that this tells us that God is Savior? It doesn't say Savior in this verse. But I think God's steadfast love and faithfulness point to the fact that God is a Savior of sinners. Let's think about these Words, steadfast love. Maybe you have uh, New King James that says mercy or loving kindness. New American Standard, I think, that says loving kindness. I think the NIV might just say mercy. Steadfast love, loving kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed, and it's all throughout the Old Testament. And it is a rich word with rich and deep meaning. It means this, enduring, loyal, covenantal, never-ending, undeserved love. It is a love that is gracious. The Lord's love is a gracious love. We don't deserve it. It's a love that comes only to the undeserving. 
And it's all throughout the Old Testament. I, I think its counterpart in the New Testament is probably a mixture between the idea of grace and agape love. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and agape love is God's love for us. He just chooses to love us, not because we're lovely, but because he chooses to. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Praise him. Faithfulness. Some translations say truth. I think it points to the reliability of God that he can be counted on, that he will keep his word, that he is stable, that he's not finicky like you and I. And isn't that wonderful? That his love is not, he doesn't, not up and down, he's faithful, always faithful. He can be counted on. It's not hard to see how these two things come together or go together. Imagine if God was unstable like a volcano that is on the verge of erupting at any time. We could never rest in his love for us. Imagine if it depended upon, imagine if his love depended upon us and our performance. We could never rest in his gracious love. We never could. But God is glorious because of his love, his steadfast love and faithfulness. Lamentations chapter three brings these two words together beautifully or these two, what? Well, these two ideas. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The love and mercy of God, which never ceases for his covenant, beloved people, it both rests on and is evidence of his faithfulness. Of course, ultimately, we see these two qualities, God's love and faithfulness, find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? We see God's love and his faithfulness, his commitment to his own word, and his commitment to his people, and his steadfast love, they find their fulfillment in Christ. John 1.14, it says that Jesus is full of grace, which is very similar to steadfast love, and he's full of truth. So this psalm says, give glory to God because he's a savior. What else does this psalm tell us about the glory of God's name? How about this? It says that he is a sovereign ruler. Verses two and three. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God, the true God, is in heaven and he does whatever he wants. He doesn't merely do what he must or what he should or what he ought to do. I mean, I guess who, did, who gets to determine that too, right? But he does what he pleases. He's not externally constrained to do what he otherwise wouldn't want to do. He does what he desires. He does what he pleases. And nobody can stop him. That's reason to praise him and give him glory. He doesn't have any rivals If he wants to do something, listen, nobody has veto power over God. Not the Supreme Court, 
Not Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, not the Senate, not Russia, not China, not you, and not the devil. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God is a sovereign ruler. And the scriptures make it clear he's sovereign in, in his ruling over the earth and nature. Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God is sovereign over rulers, kings, queens, presidents, governors, and he's sovereign over their actions. Daniel 2, 20 and 21 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will or wherever he pleases. With the upcoming election, isn't this encouraging? I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Vote, be responsible. Do it before God with a clear conscience. Go do that. I want to encourage you to do that. But isn't it encouraging that God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. The outcome is ultimately in his hands. He uses means. He uses means. He uses people engaging in the process, but it's in his hands. Amen. And God is sovereign even over the sinful acts of men. I say, really? Yes. Think about the most sinful act in all of human history. What is it? It's the crucifixion of Christ, right? It's, it's the execution and murder of the eternal Son of God by sinful, evil, evil men. It turned out to be according to the Father's plan. In Acts chapter 4, when the disciples are praying together, they lift up their voices to God in one accord, all together, and they say, Lord, truly in this city of Jerusalem, the nations gathered against your anointed Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, the, the, Greek, the, Jews, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, and he said, they said this, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And this is meant to be a great encouragement for his people and a reason for us to give him glory. Here's one more thing the psalm says about God to the glory of his name. He says that he's a creator. Not a creator, he is the creator. God is creator of heaven and earth. Verse 15 says, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. In other words, the one who made everything. Remember the opening words of the Bible, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. And he did so ex nihilo. He did so from nothing. He didn't go to his tool shop and get out some materials. He did it from nothing. I suppose in one sense, all true and transformative worship starts right here with recognizing God as our creator. 
One of the reasons I believe we're in the mess we are right now in our society is because this most basic, fundamental truth is almost completely lost upon us. There is a creator. God is the creator, and we are his creatures. We live in his world. We breathe his air. And he has given us his law. A.W. Tozier once said that there are two fundamental categories. Okay, two fundamental categories. There's God, and then there's all that is not God. There's God, and then there's everything else. There's God the creator, and everything else that is a created being or created thing. So why is the moral insanity we see in our culture why is there the moral insanity we see in our culture right now? From the dismembering of babies in the womb to the pride of homosexuality to the transgendered madness. What's going on? Well, Paul tells us it's a worship issue. It is a worship issue. Romans 1.25, Paul says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. If you want a diagnosis for what's what the heck is going on in our world right now, read Romans 1, verses 18 to the end. The reality is that we will either worship the triune God who is our creator for our restoration or we will worship something that is created for our ruin. And so, worship is about God, the creator, the sovereign ruler, the savior. True worship, worship that transforms, magnifies the glory of God. Second, true worship expresses trust in God. Verses 5 through 11. So right after showing the insanity of worshiping idols, right? Idols, they have eyes, can't see, ears, can't hear. They have hands, can't feel. All of that. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The psalmist says this. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The point couldn't be clear. True worship expresses trust in God. The mute, lame, deaf gods can't help anyone. They can't protect anyone. And so we're to trust in the Lord. The, the, the word trust simply means to have confidence in or to be bold and secure and to feel safe in. And you can see how magnifying the glory of God's name leads to having this kind of bold trust in God. When we know that God is the sovereign ruler, the creator, and our savior, we put our trust in him. And our worship expresses that trust. Trust in the Lord. He is their help. He is your help and your shield. He is your helper and he is your protector. 
When everything is giving way in life, or seems to be, where do you turn for help? Where do you turn for protection? Where do you turn for refuge? Whatever that is, that is your God. Trust in the Lord. What does the old hymn say? When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Trust in the Lord. Trust, true worship expresses this confidence in God. You know, I've been thinking about what's, go- what's been going on this year. 2020, just crazy year. Everyone says that, right? It's been turned into a verb now, right? Um, I'm going to 2020 you or something like that. <laughs> I don't know how you'd use that in a sentence. But, um, but anyways, it's just been a strange year. And, and I've, I've been thinking about what is God up to? In the midst of all the chaos, what is God doing? And here's one thing I believe he's doing. I didn't get a special revelation. I didn't get a dream in the night or anything like that. But I think this is clear from the scripture. I I believe that God is causing or allowing everything to shake that can be shaken so that whatever remains is that which cannot ever be shaken. Remember Hebrews 12? We talked about that a few months back now. God is causing things to shake so that the crutches that his people lean on and trust in, these gods that can't do anything to save you or help you or protect you, ultimately, will give way. And what remains is something that's solid, a kingdom that can't be shaken. Psalm 125 says, those who trust in the Lord are like what? Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So worship expresses this trust in God, which is why the Lord Jesus and his perfect redeeming work has always been the center of the worship of the Christian church. And you see even in the book of Revelation, when we're with the Lord forever, and even right now, what will our worship center on? Christ, the lamb who was slain to redeem us. Number three, true worship is brought by the people of God together. True worship is brought by the people of God together. Notice the pronouns used in this psalm. It's us, not me. Their, not him or her. Our, we. Notice the households and groups that are mentioned. House of Israel, house of Aaron, you who fear the Lord. Worship at its highest level is done together, not in isolation. When God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, what was the purpose? It was so that they could worship him. And when Pharaoh said, tell you what, Moses, tell God I'll let the men go, but I want the women and children to stay. What what was the answer? Nope, men, women, children, all of them, every one of them, they're coming out, they're gonna worship me together. all the people, young and old. What is the emphasis throughout the book of Hebrews? It is at least 
three or four times we see this phrase, let us draw near to God. It doesn't turn us in on ourselves or say, why don't you go into your prayer closet and draw near to God by yourself? That's good, that's important, but the emphasis in the scriptures from beginning to end is of a corporate people, a church, the assembly of Israel drawing near to God together. The Psalms are replete with the call to worship corporately. Psalm 95.6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Or my favorite, Psalm 34.3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's what Luke was doing this morning, right? That's, we li- All you his saints, lift up your voices to God. Of course, there's place and time for individual aspects of worship. You know, there, there certainly is an in individual aspect to worship. You can't worship for me, nor can I for you. And I may and I must worship the Lord when I'm all alone, but all throughout the Bible, the emphasis is on a people, on a community, on an assembly, on the church gathering to the Lord in worship. So the summit or the apex of our worship of the Lord ought to be the experience of worshiping together, which quite frankly is one of the deeply troubling things in some places where churches are being told from on high, you shall not meet. I understand why certain people choose not to for a season, but to hear from governmental officials, you shall not, you must not, you dare not, is deeply troubling. It's when we draw near to God and worship together for the glory of God to magnify the greatness of God, expressing our trust in God that we become like him. So true worship, worship that transforms is brought by the people of God together. And finally, true worship receives the blessing of God. Verses 12 to 15, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who truly worship God in spirit and in truth receive the blessing of God. And not just a little, not just a sprinkle of his blessing, right? Like that, remember I'd go to my grandpa's church uh, when we'd visit him, uh, the Catholic church, and I got that little sprinkle thing. They would kind of just get people a little wet, you know? Um, it's not like that. He pours the mother load of blessings upon those who revere him and honor him. And listen to this, and their Children. Parents, the greatest thing you can give your children is to teach them to worship God. To worship the Lord with them, to worship the Lord in front of them, and to help them do the same so that the blessing of the Lord is upon you and upon them and upon your family to a thousand generations. And I love the phrase, 
May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. May you be blessed by the one who owns everything. Right? May this God bless you and your children. And of course, much of the blessing, isn't it? Much of the blessing that is heaped upon us is that we become more like him. Much of the blessing is that we become more like the God that we worship and that we love. That we become more like the Lord Jesus. Loving, joyful, peacemakers, strong, patient, kind, steadfast, persevering, generous, forgiving, faithful, gentle, humble, and so forth. You and I become like what we worship. This is a non-negotiable reality. And you were made to worship the triune God of the Bible, the Father, Son, and Spirit. You were made to worship the Father and the Son in the power of the Spirit. We were made to do this together in order to magnify the glory of God, express our trust in God, and receive the rich blessing of God along with our children and grandchildren forever. Listen, you and I don't know what the future holds, right? With this election on Tuesday, it seems like the world is hanging in the balance. (laughs) But God rules the world. Amen? We know the one that rules in heaven and does whatever he pleases. It's important to vote. It's important to engage in the process. I want to encourage you to do that and to do so with your eyes wide open in a way that you believe honors the Lord, to do it as an act of worship, to do it as an act of worship. Let your voting be a way you worship the God of Scripture. Trusting that God does, in fact, rule the world. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And he loves us, and he's faithful. And he will accomplish his purposes for his glory and for our good. And so our highest aim is not to be political activists, but to be white-hot worshipers of God, full of his spirit. Let's pray.